Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene. Winter's coming. 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 There was so much going on, but it did not feel long. I appreciated the runtime. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 93% and IMDb a 9.5. They said after the slightly ponderous opening to the season, I was utterly delighted by this episode, one that I felt had a real respect for the years we've put into these characters and this wonderfully convoluted world. And I couldn't agree more with that. We knew episodes one and two were set up, but episode three paid off in such a great way, not only to this season by calling back to other seasons and starting to tie everything up for us, bring us closer to the conclusion. This episode, I feel, was the jumping off point for us. Basically, it's putting everything in motion. We now have a better understanding of what's going on. And funny enough, most of the trailer before the season started... Most of those clips and quotes came from this episode. Yeah, I noticed that. That was great. There was also some truly funny moments here that I missed. And things were getting pretty serious the end of last season into the beginning of this season. I love having Tyrion back with some of his witty remarks. Oh, me too. The characters reuniting. I mean, getting John and Tyrion together on screen for the first time since season one, episode three. And the fact that they opened it up with that. It was amazing. I forgot how much I love to watch Tyrion speak. And although I do have my favorite scene, every other scene that was my favorite, besides the one I will bring up later, was when John and Tyrion were talking together. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they work great together. Let's talk for a minute about the title meaning. I had thought this was going to go back to a book term. They talk about the king's justice or the queen's justice which is actually a title held by the royal executioner, whose duty is to kill anyone condemned by the king, the hand of the king, or the small council, usually by public beheading. But this really seems to refer more to the queen herself laying down the law of the land, and I do think we saw it in multiple areas the way we hoped we would with both Cersei and Danny. I guess what really stands out is Cersei in this episode, but also Lady Olenna. I know she's not a queen, per se, but she had her justice in the end as well. And she had a great final moment to go out on, another great part of this episode. We'll talk about that when we get further into the crow's eye view. The opening map sequence this time showed us King's Landing, Dragonstone, Pike, Winterfell, The Wall, and Old Town. This struck me a little, I guess I knew the Ironborn and the Iron Islands were becoming a bigger part of this show, that Euron was really starting to be pivotal as Cersei's ally, but I still wasn't picturing it as one of the 
main locations, the main seats of power, that it's going to stay on that map for the rest of the season, I suppose. Because I had kind of wondered, would we see Casterly Rock or High Garden on that for this episode? And for new faces and places, we didn't have much. Thank God. So many characters. <laughs> Late in the seasons now, I don't think they're going to be introducing too many new people. But we got the new Ironborn Raider, who we see on the ship that helps Theon aboard. We don't have a name or identification for him yet. And we also saw the reappearance of Tycho Nestoris, played by Mark Gaddis. We love Mark Gaddis. The main negotiator for the Iron Bank. And for our new locations, we got our first glimpse ever on the TV show of Casterly Rock, the stronghold of House Lannister. Now, if you haven't read the books, you probably wouldn't be too familiar other than what they told you on the show. So it's located on the western coast of Westeros on an outcropping overlooking the Sunset Sea. In the books, it's notoriously one of the most productive areas in the realm, and it provides the Lannisters with their wealth because they have a major gold mine located underneath the rock. We do hear about them being one of the wealthier families, wealthier locations, but they're making it seem as though Highgarden is a lot more valuable in this regard. The reason they go after it in the show is because it's the unspoken seat of power. And finally, we saw Highgarden. And I believe also for the first time on the TV show, we might have gotten a glimpse when Marjorie was describing it to Sansa, but it's the first time we actually go there. It's the seat of House Tyrell. Located on the banks of the River Mander, it's a major thoroughfare linking Old Town to King's Landing. So that should give you an idea of where it is geographically. Now, not seen in this episode, we didn't get Arya, Brienne, Tormund and the Wildlings, the Hound and the Brotherhood, the Wall and the Night's Watch, or the Walkers. And our deaths for this episode were Tyene Sand and Lady Olena. We anticipate Tyene Sand dying. Yeah, it's sort of an implied death, right? Unless they can get their hands on an antidote, which I don't see happening, but it depends on how long this poison takes to react. I think the show actually will have her die and maybe show us it. I have a theory, and I was going to wait, but let me just go through it. Okay. We now have Ilaria in the dungeons, and as to what Cersei said, she's not going to kill her. She's going to let her stay there forever, right? She's gonna. She wants her to watch her daughter decompose into bones. Mm -hmm. So to me, what that means is there's a weapon in the walls of King's Landing. And I'm still hell-bent on thinking that Euron and Cersei are going to get closer and closer. Euron's going to keep pushing Jaime. Cersei's going to do something so messed up that Jaime realizes he's being used. And I think it was foreshadowed when Lady Olena was speaking to him. I think she put a little seed in his brain. Yeah. Just like she did with Danny last episode, and we'll see that seed cultivate next episode. This is just the starts of it. Euron is going to put a bridge between them. Jamie's going to realize what's going on, and Bronn is going to go down there for him, and he's going to release Ilaria, and Ilaria will be sneaky and kill somebody. Maybe Cersei? I, I, I'm, that's kind of a big declaration, but <laughs> this is all going on in my head. It's probably really wrong, but it's fun. I like this for a couple of reasons. You bring up some good points that we have to talk about. The poison that Cersei gave to Tyene that Kyburn had created for her was a replication of what Ilaria gave to Marcella, and that's called the Long Farewell. The poison is named this way because it does sometimes take a long time for the death to occur. Usually it does. 
But how long exactly depends on a lot of different factors, including the constitution of the person, how healthy were they to begin with, a ton of different things. But either way, I don't think it's going to be long enough for Tyene to be saved. We know that the sand snakes are accustomed to carrying around antidotes to poisons with them because they have to use them often. But I have a feeling they would have been searched before they were brought down there. Any of that would have been removed. And I don't think someone like Braun is going to have the chance to realize and get down there in time to save her. And now we're bringing up Braun because he has a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the sand snakes. So he might not want to see them killed. But I think you're right that it may still pose an opportunity for Alaria to get out of here alive. It's always a classic mistake when the villains fail to kill the other people right away. If they keep them around, keep them hiding somewhere for their own petty revenge or, or just stupidity, it tends to come back and bite them in the ass. I don't think it's going to be easy to get out of the dungeons and, and figure out a way out of this, but Alaria is very crafty. Yeah. And I think they've already set that up for us. We saw that a while ago when Tyrion was able to escape, now with the help of Jamie. but you know, we're talking about somebody coming to the aid here. He was able to get out of the dungeons and go make his way up to, to find toilet. Tywin and kill him. Um, and I think that could be a foreshadowing that it might happen again. And you know, Alaria doesn't have to actually use a knife or a sword. She can create poison, and she can poison key characters for us. Mm -hmm. Quietly, with nobody knowing she's there or doing it. I, I sort of like the thought you're bringing up of kind of having a rat in the walls. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little like what we thought Arya would be doing, sneaking around, disguised faces, taking people off the kill list. But what if it's another character that steps into this role, such as Alaria? We're already discussing the episode. It was so exciting. We can't contain ourselves. So let's get to our crow's eye view. Now, as you know, we go location by location. We're going to start off with Dragonstone, and that had a lot of scenes throughout the episode that we're going to condense into one discussion. And it starts out where Jon and Davos arrive at the shores of Dragonstone, and they're met by Missandei and Tyrion. Right away, with the greeting between the two men... The Bastard of Winterfell, the Dwarf of Casterly Rock. I love it. Of course, they have to do the classic. They're staring at each other. And then a little bit of a smile comes through. <laughs> and that made me smile. We've been waiting for John to get here for so long. Well, not at Dragonstone, but to get to Danny. Yeah. For so long. And it's finally here. Seven seasons. Like we said, it's been since season one, since Tyrion and Jon were united, and he brings that up. It's been a long road. Jon says, the last time I saw you, you were pissing off the wall. <laughs> it's been a long road, but we're both still here. I love Tyrion, and I knew right away he would be pivotal for this relationship. As they're walking up those long steps to get to the castle, he does say, I hear she's alive and well, speaking of Sansa. Does she miss me terribly? Sham marriage and unconsummated. So right away, he's showing his respect. Uh, he did not mean that in any way, but it was funny how as soon as he started talking, he did get a little uncomfortable about it. <laughs> he wanted John to know it wasn't his plan. He didn't take advantage of it. And also he realizes what a special person Sansa is. I think that's why he said she's much smarter than she lets on. Mm -hmm. And she's showing it. But before you even get to that, you skipped over the part where Tyrion recognizes Davos as the Onion Knight by name. So his reputation precedes him. And this must be such a weird homecoming for Davos. The first mm, time yeah. he's been back to Dragonstone since it was Stannis' place. Yeah, for sure. A very different place. 
And Tyrion introduces Missandei as the queen's most trusted advisor, immediately putting her in a certain position. But the first thing Missandei does is ask them to surrender their weapons. Uh, we're setting a tone from the get-go, and John hesitantly agrees he doesn't want to start this thing off on a bad footing, but they're noticing the Dithraki men and how this place has changed. So there is some awkwardness as they're making this climb, the walkway up to the castle. Uh, but Tyrion and Jon say at some point they're going to share their stories of how they wound up here as King in the North and Hand of the Queen. Yeah, and they said it in such a Tyrion kind of way. The banter is perfect. That's what I really love about it. And Tyrion is also surprised that Jon has come here, despite the advice of his council. This is when he said the Starks don't fare well when traveling south. Then right after Tyrion finishes saying that, Jon rebuts with true, but I'm not a Stark. And then the dragon comes and swoops down, which I think is a little wink-wink. We're going to talk about this many times this episode. Jon is one of the dragon riders. And I think this was one of the, <laughs> the ways that they're telling us, because he just says, I'm not a Stark. And then a dragon comes down and swoops down. And then the dragon flies over. I'm not a Stark, I'm a Targaryen. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't even think about the timing of it. I was actually going to say, did we miss an opportunity to set Jon up as having an instant connection to the dragons? The way when Tyrion first saw them, he was sort of filled with awe and wonder in addition to fear. And later when he goes down to unchain them, he has a relationship with them. And we didn't see that with John. <laughs> what we saw was John and Davos hit the deck as they swoop over. They're so shocked. Tyrion even says no one really gets used to them other than their mother. But I love the way you read that on the timing, and I think you're correct. Next, as Melisandre watches on from above, Varys wonders why she isn't there. After instigating this meeting, putting it all together, why isn't she present? She says she's done her part by joining Ice and Fire. Her days of advising kings are over. Now, we had spoke about last episode that this was going to be quite a weird meeting when Davos sees her. Mm -hmm. So I guess this is how she's superseding that awkward conversation that they might have. She's just avoiding it. She knows at that point, she'd only make things worse. She is no longer any help at this stage. And she says that. They didn't part on good terms. She would only be a distraction. In fact, she plans to go to Volantis soon. Now, that was strange to me. Why is she going there? Is it to meet up with Kinvara and the other red priests and priestesses? To those who don't remember where Volantis is, it was that big city we saw them travel through that had the long bridge. Where they did a lot of trading. And, um, and Jorah was looking for the right gift to buy. Yeah, they were doing trading. I think that was also the same scene where we saw Kinvara preaching for the first time. Now, we don't know of Melisandre having any personal connection to her, but I'm thinking if she's kicked out of every place she could go in Westeros, maybe she would go to link back up with her people. <laughs> well, I'm hoping they would be there to help. You would think all the Red Priests would join together and fight the war against the White Walkers, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, we heard about them speaking of the place of the Lord of Light in this battle. Uh, but I also kind of wondered, could it be part of a larger journey? Because she had spoken about going to Ashai, and that was a place we had really wanted to see. I don't think we're going to have time for it on the show, but we are starting to really stretch the rules of what's possible for time and travel. Oh, it's broken. The rules are broken. All of our heroes are in different spots every episode. And I don't mind that because at season seven, do you really want to be spending time seeing Traveling. them 
traveling along the road. No. <laughs> uh, but does that mean possibilities like this are open to us now, maybe actually getting to see a place like a shy? She also tells Varys, though, that one day she will be back in Westeros because the two of them are destined to die there. Has she been reading his future in the flames? Maybe, or else she knows she's coming back to fight as well, and it's inevitable. Maybe she has been. I mean, Varys seems very taken aback by that. Mm. Normally, words don't push him like that. He's normally the wordsmith that knows always what's going on. I mean, even when they started the conversation, he was peeling back at her layers right away. I was like, wow, he's onto her already. And the scene ends, paused on his face. So that means something. I think he's aware of the dangers that's going to happen. It's probably an odd position for someone like Varys to be in, right? He's used to having his little birds being the one to know everything about everyone before other people do. Now you have somebody like Melisandre with the talent of seeing into the future, reading the flames. She's got a one-up on him, and I don't think he likes that very much. I was also thinking to myself that Varys is looking different. He's looking trimmer, tanner, a little more fierce. Yeah. Right? And meanwhile, Melisandre keeps making this transformation of looking a little more timid and, and sort of put in her place. She's afraid to step out of bounds now. And this is the part where John enters the main hall and <laughs> finally meets Danny. And the look on his face when he walks in there. I thought he looked out of place for the first time since he arrived at the wall and he was new man on the scene. For a moment, it wasn't confident, John. No. It, it was a little intimidated. Well, he was looking around, and those halls were designed to intimidate anyone coming through them. And I think that was working on him for a bit. He doesn't know what he's walking into. He doesn't have his swords. He has very limited people. All he has is Tyrion. Yeah, that's got to be terrifying. <laughs> I love that Davos takes that back almost immediately. I was cheering for him because Masande is making it worse. She's talking up Danny's many titles. Before you stands Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful queen of the Andals and the First Men, protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the mother of dragons, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the unburnt, the breaker of chains. And then Davos steps forward and just says, Jon Snow, King of the North. <laughs> it was perfect because... That's what Jon Snow stands for. Like, he doesn't need to declare himself for everything that he's done. But I also think that this was done on purpose, not just to make everyone have a chuckle. It starts the whole scene off with the fact that they don't know each other. They don't know that they both have gone through the same or similar trials and tribulations, and they've both sacrificed themselves and their goals to help others. Sacrificed their very lives. Danny walked into the flames in order to try to save Caldrogo and her people, and came out untouched. And John died while trying to unite his people and, and push this common goal of fighting the others by bringing the wild things through and was killed and came back to life. And I love, I, I know we're going to get there in a minute, but he stopped Davos before he could say that. I guess he's thinking at this point, if she doesn't believe in things like others and all this other crazy shit, she's certainly not going to believe I was brought back from the dead. She's going to think I'm a madman. But I thought this is the one area they might be able to agree on and see the commonalities of how far exactly they were willing to go for this cause. Uh, but in the beginning, there is a different tone to how they're being presented. Danny is almost 
a little bit back to that petulant child. I have the right to this throne. This throne is mine. Look at me and everything I've gone through. What do you know? And, and John's not really playing that game of um, I've done X, Y, Z. So she starts out by pointing out there hasn't been a king in the north since Torrin Stark, who bent the knee to the Targaryens in perpetuity forever, Jon Snow. <laughs> I.e., you must kneel. And he rebuts that by reminding Danny that her father burned his grandfather and uncle alive. Now, one quick note on this. The details of that are slightly different in the book. His grandfather, Rickard, was burned alive in his armor, but his uncle, Brandon, who was there and made to watch this, actually strangled himself to death trying to reach Rickard from the trap the Mad King had set with that exact purpose in mind, knowing that as he saw him burning, he would try to get to him. But of course, she probably doesn't know that. Danny comes back with this beautiful speech about her father. He would have burned the seven kingdoms. My father was an evil man. On behalf of House Targaryen, I ask your forgiveness for the crimes he committed against your family. And I ask you not to judge a daughter by the sins of her father. Our two houses were allies for centuries. And those were the best centuries the Seven Kingdoms have ever known. Centuries of peace and prosperity, with a Targaryen sitting on the Iron Throne and a Stark serving as Warden of the North. I am the last Targaryen, Jon Snow. Honor the pledge your ancestor made to mine. And now we start to see the real Danny. She knows that her family has done wrong. And then John's rebuttal. He takes his time, he looks around again, and he still doesn't bend the knee. He throws it right back at her. You're not guilty of your father's crimes. And I'm not beholden to my ancestors' vows. Mm-hmm. Danny, for a minute, tries to bring him in on this idea by saying their houses were allies for centuries, and that was a time of peace and prosperity. So together they can save the country from those who would destroy it. And I thought they were going to have their reconciliation, but she just couldn't get off that. You can't call yourself king in the north. You can't be a ruler of any kind. And I was getting so frustrated with her. You guys are so close to making this work. Why does that matter? But she even tells Tyrion she doesn't understand why he likes Jon. But then she begins to talk about her history, everything she's been through, how Robert sent assassins to kill her. She was raped, sold, exiled. The only thing that kept her alive all of this time was faith in herself. I mean, the world hadn't seen a dragon in centuries. The Dothraki had never crossed the sea until her. All of this makes her believe it's not only her birthright, but fate. She is meant to rule these seven kingdoms and can do it. But John has an answer for that too. He's seen the real threat, the army of the dead, the Night King. It's all real. If they get past the wall, none of this is going to matter. She'll be ruling over a graveyard. Can you imagine being in John's position? You know something that you also know sounds ridiculous. And you know you're walking into a place where this woman has worked so hard for so long to get to this position for one goal in mind, which is the opposite of what John needs her <laughs> help for. And he's not going to say it for himself, so Davos points out... You don't believe him. I understand that. It sounds like nonsense. But if destiny has brought Daenerys Targaryen back to our shores, it has also made Jon Snow king in the north. You were the first to bring Dothraki to Westeros. 
He is the first to make allies of wildlings and Northmen. He was named Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He was named King in the North. Not because of his birthright. He has no birthright. He's a damn bastard. All those hard sons of bitches chose him as their leader because they believe in him. John stops him. Well, John stops him as soon as he starts talking about he literally took one in the chest. Yeah. Yeah. John's like, we can't go that crazy on her <laughs> right now. He's, she's not even getting this stuff. She, she's not ready for it yet. Uh, and he just comes back with, you know, her claim rests entirely with her lineage, her father's name. His goes deeper than that. His people trust him and they've named him as their ruler. They want him. I think this was Davos realizing the similarities. As Danny was speaking and explaining what she's gone through, he realized that they are so similar. And that was his time to speak up. Sure. Because John won't talk about himself like that. I think Tyrion's seeing it too, and we'll get to his revelation later. But they're interrupted here. Danny says, in that case, he's in open rebellion. He's sort of thinking that's going to mean he's a prisoner now. But Varys comes in to whisper something to her. And she says to have rooms drawn up for the guests. They leave, and Varys tells her what happened to her fleet. Before they leave, I thought this was so telling. John says, are we prisoners here? She says, not yet. This is the beginning of the relationship, and we see right now they're feeling each other out, and I believe, and we do see remnants of it this episode, that they will grow to respect each other and work together. Yeah, that's not Danny being a hard ass. We've seen this before. If she gets to a point where she says something like that to a person... Well, not yet, or we're going to have to feel it out. She just means she needs time to see them prove it, to see how this is going to work. She's already been opened up to the idea of listening to him. I'm not going to leave Dragonstone because we have more to discuss, but this is where that quick clip was. As she wonders if all of her men were dead or captured, they cut to the Narrow Sea, where Theon is being pulled out of the water aboard an ironborn ship. And he tells the captain, Euron captured his sister. He tried to save her, but failed. And the man says, you wouldn't be here if you tried. So we find out two or three ships escaped and the rest were sunk or captured. What I don't understand is, <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. It doesn't really, but they're just getting the news of that now. But Jon Snow is already at Dragonstone. It would have taken Jon weeks to get there. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I've kind of been hearing this a lot about the time discrepancy, the, the travel problems, and I'm seeing it too. But when I think about the alternative, which is to actually slow that down and see people traveling yeah. and make it make sense geographically, that's boring. boring. True. And I don't know that there's an in-between, a way to explain it without excessive dialogue that gets really silly, just, you know, kind of uh, making excuses for it. So I, I kind of, it doesn't bother me because I'd rather it this way. But to those of you who are upset by it, I can see where it is a problem. So we see Reek isn't dead. He gets picked up. We had a clatter who wrote to us before the episode. Richard, he says, hey, guys, just started listening to the podcast. Love it. I think everyone is done with Theon right now. But what if this story isn't done? What if he drowns while in the water and then comes back as a major badass? Greyjoys love the drowned king. So what if he comes back as a drowned king and that is how he saves his sister? When we got that email, I was like, hell yes. Unfortunately, it looks like we're not going to get that. I was really excited about it because, you know, I've been a big promoter of I want to see the Theon redemption arc. What is it about me? I want to see it with Jamie too. Uh, but I couldn't find a way that made that possible. And I don't know why I never thought of his experiencing a rebirth by drowning. 
since that is such a major part of the Ironborn culture. And in the books, they go into his uncle Aaron, who is a priest and is all about drowning people, and bringing them back from the dead. And he doesn't believe in any of this bullshit baptizing some of the Ironborn are doing nowadays where they just dunk people. He full on drowns them until they've died and then brings them back. And this is where their words come in. What is dead may never die, but rises harder and stronger. So when we got this email, I was really excited, uh, but it's a little anticlimactic. They just pick Theon up, and even the man recognizes he's a coward. If he tried, he, yeah. he would have been dead. He wouldn't be here. But what does that leave for Theon? What is the purpose of him now and his story moving forward if not to have a turnaround? That's true, and I hope it does happen, but I just... They're going to take it. It's going to take a lot for the fans to get back on board with him. And it's going to take even more for his sister to now trust him again. Mm-hmm. She's given him many chances. It's true. Okay, now back to Dragonstone. Later, Tyrion joins Jon on the bluff above the sea, saying he came to brood over his failure to predict the Greyjoy attack. But Jon does a much better job at brooding. You make me feel like I'm failing at brooding. <laughs> Another great classic scene with the two of them, full of important information, full of plot points, and humor. And, critically, Tyrion says he does believe him about the walkers. I love this quote. He says, I trust the eyes of an honest man more than I trust what everyone knows. And he's talking about John and Mormont. But John wonders how he's supposed to convince other people of this. And Tyrion says, people's minds aren't made to confront problems that large. It's almost comforting to face a monster with a familiar face like my sister. And when John worries if his people were right to warn him against going south to meet the Mad King's daughter, Tyrion points out that people aren't what they seem and encourages John to ask the people here what they think of Danny. She protects them, just like John protects his people. They're not that dissimilar. And he ends it by saying, So do you have anything reasonable to ask? What do you mean? Maybe you are a northern fool. I'm asking if there's something I can do to help you. It's not reasonable to ask her immediately to go fight this war for a person she doesn't know, an enemy she's never seen, but what's one thing he can give him? Because he wants to help. He wants to be the mediator that can make this work because he he believes in both of them, but he needs something to work off. He can't work off of there's dead people and we need to stop what we're doing. This scene was great because we see how much John is doubting himself. He's regretting leaving the North. He thinks now he's stuck and he's gotten himself in the predicament that they told him he would. Because there's no way he can take his army now and bring him south. They won't go for it. As we said, he keeps having to make all these really difficult, controversial decisions based on nothing except his own instinct of what's right. If you have everybody telling you this is a bad idea... And now you come here and Danny's reacting like she does. That must make you second guess yourself. But this works because privately Tyrion tells Danny that Jon's men need the dragonglass, that it can be turned into weapons against the White Walkers. And this is a productive step that costs her nothing. Yeah, give them something by giving them nothing. Very brilliantly done. He's very good at persuading people. Yeah, this is also the point where Danny wonders at Davos's comment about the taking a knife for his people mm-hmm. thing. I thought it was awesome that she picked up on that. Yeah. But Tyrion brushes it off, and that's kind of the end of it for now. Well, it's following that through line of 
when they first met and Danny thought Jon Snow was calling her a child and he was saying it's a figure of speech. So she was saying, is this a figure of speech as well? And he says, please excuse the northerner's grandeur. So then John joins Danny alone as they watch the dragons fly overhead and tells him how she named them for her brothers. Rhaegal for her brother Rhaegar and Viserion for her brother Viserys. I think this is important and a lot of our clatchers wrote into us saying this as well. Rhaegal is named after John's father, so that more than likely will be the dragon that John rides. And when we were discussing this, you asked me, okay, but what's the correlation with the third dragon? Right, Viserys, if that winds up being the one Tyrion rides. So we don't know specifically, but I do wonder if that's considered the runt of the litter. I I think he might be the smallest one, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but... We know for sure Drogon is the largest, and then you have these other two, which are kind of akin to each other in size. But I think that one of them was definitely less aggressive in the books, and I wonder if maybe that's also the one he was kind of speaking more to when he was down there unleashing them. Right. And that's when Danny remarks that people thought the dragons were gone from the world, and perhaps she should be examining what they think they know. As far as the people. Basically saying, don't listen to what the masses say. It's not always true. And I think it's the first point of her conceding she could be wrong too. Just because her first reaction to John's news is the same as Tyrion's was initially, you want me to believe in grumpkins and snarks, doesn't mean it's not true. She's seen a lot of shit that nobody else would have believed, such as dragons coming back into the world. They were flat out telling people. People were seeing the dragons, and they still didn't understand the gravity of it. So what's to say that it's not the same situation John finds himself in? And yet neither of them is ready to change their mind yet about ruling. But I think there's respect being gained. They were both out there alone. I saw there was guards way out in the distance, but that's one huge step. Yeah. And she's going to allow him to mine for the dragon glass. Yeah. And, you know, that's something... And she's going to help as well. Yes, give him people, give him support. I'm hoping through this time he'll be able to educate her on what's going on and maybe open her mind a little bit towards it. And we see that she's losing tremendously, and I'm jumping ahead. We will go into detail with that. But she's lost most of her force now. Something needs to be done. Now, it's either she decides to just go all out and go for it now, or she realizes, you know what? F that. Let's go north. I don't know which way it'll go. I think it's going to be a lot more convoluted than that. And depends on what happens next with Cersei and King's Landing, how much of a threat does that that pose. Yeah. And speaking of that, let's go over to King's Landing. The people in the streets cheer as Euron rides through, towing Yara, Alaria, and Tyene behind his horse. He taunts Yara about Theon's cowardice, and he is soaking all of this up. I was a little surprised at how energetically the people of King's Landing were cheering for an ironborn man that has been their enemy for many years, or at least once they had an alliance, it was an uneasy one. They didn't see much of the ironborn. That's the way they liked it. And they didn't have any real connection to Cersei, number one. They really don't like her that much. I mean, sure, it's a terrible tragedy that Marcella was killed, but they're not directly tied to this or the events with the Sand Snakes. Yeah, they kind of bring that out when Jamie is speaking to Euron. And Euron talks, he's waving, and he's like, this is a good feeling. You must like getting this praise. And he says, it's not too long ago they were yelling against my sister. 
Yeah. If we make one mistake, they'll be yelling against you and us again. Now, these people, they're kind of like Washington, D.C., as far as America. Um, there's spots in our capital that is the poorest spots, the most dangerous spots. And I think it's similar here. Absolutely. And it's showing you how fickle this mob mentality is. They don't have a lot to live for in life. Uh, they sort of have a, a bum deal here. So one of their biggest excitements is when things like this happen. And I think they're used to their rulers not caring that much about them. So whenever they can give them a little bit of something that seems to be for the people, they cheer it. But as you said, that can go back just as quickly. So the things that seem to be Cersei's gains right now, the way she's winning, she's not holding any of that very firmly at all. It's, it's super tenuous. We'll talk more about when it comes to the battles later. She has won them now, but this is a lot of different areas she's going to need to hold in order for these people to remain loyal to her, to hold the, the land, the money that's coming in from them. She's also going to need to thwart any other attacks that might come from Danny's army. And she did have the problem of figuring out how to feed her people for the winter. It's very important. I think they've figured that out with Highgard, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But back to Euron, he rides into the throne room, much like Tywin did after the Battle of the Blackwater, right up to the Iron Throne on his horse, and presents his gifts to Cersei, justice for her murdered daughter. So we were right on this, and a lot of people were right. It only made sense once we really thought about it what would be the gifts, and it would be the sand stinks. Did you see the look on Cersei's face? She was happy and pissed at the same time when the two sand snakes were dropped in front of her feet. Yeah, and they took quick notice of the mountain standing in the background. Do you think that Ilaria knew that was the mountain, the one who killed her husband? It seems like she was unsure. She was looking at him first because you can't really see much of him behind that that armor he wears, but I think she came to the point eventually that it was him. And that's when she, she really sank in, I think, the weight of what was going to happen to her. And Cersei says to Euron, he's proven himself a true ally, decrees he will command the naval forces and Jamie will rule the army. But he's not going to get his prize, his marriage, until the war is won. And he's okay with that for right now. Well, he doesn't really have much choice. And this is playing out the way he wanted to anyways. He has more of a plan than we know. And it's evident with the way he speaks to Jamie. Oh, yeah. He's really taunting him here, looking for tips for what Cersei likes in bed. It, it also reveals he knows they're together. Everyone knows we're finding out in this episode. They have not done a job of keeping this a secret at all. Euron is a badass and someone we really need to be worried about. He's got super fast ships and uh, he's smarter than... At least I thought he was. I thought he was just another brute, but he definitely is one of the smarter ones left. I think you could see he has intelligence, but he's also a bit of a madman, and that's going to maybe balance out his cleverness. I don't know, put him and Cersei together, and they're both so focused on vengeance. I don't know if they're going to be able to formulate long-reaching plans enough to make this work for them. I think it's mainly Jamie that yeah. made the victories happen in this episode. Yeah, we discussed that a couple episodes ago. The fact that what Jon Snow is lacking is what Jaime has. Later, while chained up in the dungeons, Cersei taunts Ilaria about Oberyn's death at the hands of the mountain. Cersei wonders aloud why Ilaria took Marcella from her, the one thing she loved most in this world. Then she speaks to Tyene, 
who she imagines is Ilaria's favorite daughter. As she speaks of the many ways she imagined killing her, she kisses Tyene. And everyone knows what that means in the moment. She tells us Kyburn, the cleverest man she knows, figured out the poison Ilaria used on Marcella and made it for her. And this is the queen's justice, I guess. Ilaria is freaking out because she knows the pain that it causes. Now she has to watch it in front of her and she can't do anything to help. And she even tells her, you're going to have to contemplate the choices you made. This is how you wound up here, but you just see Cersei each episode achieving a new level of crazy. She tells them to make sure they feed her, to keep her alive longer, light the torches so she'll be able to see the death. I truly believe she is so focused on this personal revenge, she's going to lose sight of the bigger picture and make a mistake. The only person that's there right now to help her with the bigger picture is Jamie. Mm-hmm. And as she walks out, I love the music. They played the song we know, but this time with a violin. It was very nice. There was a lot of good music work in this episode. We'll come back around to that. But what you were saying about Jamie is so true. Even in that aspect, she's focused on personal victory and dominance. Yes. And it's displayed through the next scene where she goes after him in the bedroom. And at first he's going to try to rebuff her. But he doesn't. Chris, you got to see Jamie's booty. Enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. I just, I was feeling so bad for him. It didn't even translate as a sexual scene to me. It was so much about power and control. Yeah, she needed him to do her bidding. And she was using her body and sex to manipulate him mentally to continue to forge on her side. And I think they're showing us that's all she really has left. Even with someone like Jamie... That relationship isn't there anymore. She has fear and control to get people to do what she wants. And they wake to this knock at the door where a woman tells her the visitor from Bravos has arrived. And we see it's the return of Tycho Nestoris. He's given her the old line of BS in the beginning. He appreciates her as the first woman ruler, everything she had to do to restore order. But her debts are considerable and war is expensive. So Cersei figures out he's wondering who to back. And she is a pretty good choice because they have Euron's armada, plans for how to take down a dragon. And besides, if they back Danny, a revolutionary, not a monarch, their money and slave trade would suffer. And that's a really good point. It gets him, for sure. She says, just give her a fortnight and stay in King's Landing. She will repay her debt in full. So she's going to repay them with gold to request more gold? Or is it more about food at this point? Or... It's to keep his support. So in order for him to keep supporting her and perhaps give more money to fund the army for her to buy troops, buy whatever she needs, she's got to settle up her old debt before they can reestablish this relationship. They owe so much to him as it is. She had this planned in mind all along. They'll just raid Highgarden, take (laughs) all of their wealth, repay him. Now you have the Iron Bank back on your side. And it's not just about him supporting and funding her mission, but not going over and supporting Danny. True. That's the last thing she needs right now. And it makes me continue to wonder how the Iron Bank is going to come into play with the long story. They seem woven in throughout the seasons and the episodes. We recognize them as an underlying power. Whoever they back has a much better chance of claiming victory in the war. I was reading IGN. And their writer had a theory, and I think it's fun. I don't agree with it, but I think it's fun to think about. He wonders, what if Arya is hiding in the skin of Tycho Nestoris? Huh. He says, as soon as I heard about Cersei having a visitor from Bravos, my wheels started turning. 
I thought that was fun. That would have been awesome. But I still believe that Arya is going up north. But that would have been brilliant. I, I still think I might disagree with you in that even if she does go north, it's going to be for a brief period and then she's going to go back south. I know that feels counterintuitive. But everyone's been on the lookout for who Arya could pop up as. Yeah, even if it's brief, I think the briefness will not matter because of what she's going to be able to do. I think she's going to take out Littlefinger. Again, we saw pictures of her before the season even started with Littlefinger's dagger. How else is she going to get that dagger? I like this idea about Tycho. I don't think I subscribe to it. What I want to do is go back now and listen to that scene to see if there's any Arya-like comments that he makes to Cersei. They're talking about really complex concepts related to the Iron Bank that I'm not sure if Arya would have knowledge of. We know we saw her as she was spying on the man of the Kingsguard talking to the Iron Bank back in Bravos, but I don't know how much she really knows. Another one of our listeners wrote in before this episode, Olivia, to say she thought Arya would go to King's Landing to kill Jaime and use his face. I was sort of starting to think we're just going to be looking for anybody to be Arya now. I mean... You know, it's fun though, isn't what, it? It is fun, but I, I need things to back that. You know, why would I believe that that's true? Otherwise, we could just start kind of naming anyone. The reason I like that is she says Arya could cross Cersei off the list, but the Valencar prophecy would still be true. So we were looking for the second part of that prophecy. We thought that Jamie might be the one to eventually have to kill Cersei. She is getting increasingly crazy. But this way, I suppose it kind of still would be him because she's wearing Jamie's face. I, I don't believe any of that's true. And I have my reasons and I will go over it at the end of this episode. Me too. Now, this I think I've asked you many years ago, but uh, it's come up again in my head. When you have the ability to use the faceless God's powers, you have the ability to not just get the face, you transform your body, right? So if she had the mountain's face she would become the size of the mountain, right? Correct. His voice, all of that. What if they have powers? Does she have those powers? They don't explain it very well how any of this works, even in the books. But you do get a sense that Arya takes on something of the person she is emulating as she turns into them because earlier on in the books, and if you haven't gotten to this point, minor spoiler for an Arya storyline, when she starts turning into new people and they're training her in the House of Black and White, the first girl they give her, at least I think it's the first, is a girl who has been abused by her father for many years, horribly. She not only has intense physical deformities, but emotional scars. And the minute Arya puts her face on, she starts to absorb that. She's getting flashbacks of the memories that oh, the girl wow. had gone through and feeling her pain. And they're kind of talking her through, this will pass, ease into it. It's, it's shifting. So it, it almost seems a, like a bit of their soul is tied to the face. And when she puts that on, she takes it in. Wow. Um, so perhaps that could extend to knowledge they have, powers they might possess. I'm not sure. And, and then it goes back to the question of did she learn everything that needs to be learned or, or that could be as far as wearing a face. Okay, Jason, let's talk about Winterfell. We're speaking of the Starks. Here we see the men tell Sansa that for their current occupants, they have enough food to last about a year. 4,000 bushels of wheat. Uh... 
this planning, man, I, I think a big part of this was Theon sacked the castle and burned a lot of what would have borne out to be food for the winter. So they're really in trouble now. Sansa advises they start shipping grain from other houses here in case people flee there for shelter. Very smart. She also notices that because of the cold, our, your armor tends to react differently and you need leather there to help with it. And she was the one that notices it while walking by. Why are these not being made with leather? So they're showing us that she has competence. We never thought she didn't. I think she has a brilliant mind. That's not my issue. My issue is her emotional decisions because of what she's been through and because of how much she hates Cersei and because of the fact she hasn't seen the White Walkers. Some people were pointing out this felt a little odd that Sansa did know so much, more than her advisors, men who have been doing this for many years, blacksmiths that should know the most about the trade and outfitting people for northern weather. Why would she know more about that than they do to point it out to them? That's a good... That makes a lot of sense, but I think they needed something to show. Sansa has knowledge. She could potentially be good at this. I mean, what else is she really going to bring to the table? She was raised in the North by maesters that taught her all about what it is to live here and fight here, so maybe she would know. Coming back to what you were saying, being concerned for her, it always comes around to Littlefinger for me. He's shadowing her here and saying that command suits her. He also warns her not to forget about Cersei. Don't fight in the north or the south. Fight every battle everywhere, always in your mind. This is one of those trailer scenes that we got. He tells her to kind of think about any possible series of events, what could happen. We're getting a glimpse into the way his mind works and how he's able to preempt any event. The look on his face when he was speaking to her, it was like, uh, it was very weird. Almost as if he was possessed. And maybe he is. He's possessed by his desires. Yes, one of our clatchers, I think it's Zymi. I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Thinks this goes against what we predicted last episode, that she would make a mistake. She's not sure how she will be affected by Littlefinger's comment, but she doesn't think it's bad advice or that Littlefinger is scheming for himself. It's actually good advice to make her think of every possible scenario. But I have to disagree here. I don't think he's bringing it up to try to help her. And if he is, it's in order to get to his main goal of seeing her become a powerful person that he can rule alongside. I also have a note here about preparing for winter. This topic really interested me, and there was a lot more worry and discussion amongst the small folk about the winter, provisions, food, things of that nature in the books, but we don't get a chance to see as much of it on the show. In this episode, Sansa asked Maester Woken what the longest winter was in the past 100 years, and he just kind of said he would check. He didn't know. But Tyrion once told us the longest winter in his memory was three years. Most seasons last one to two years. Three-year-long seasons are rarer, and decade-long seasons only happen about once per century. In fact, in season two, Pycelle told us the 10-year-long summer that just ended was the longest in living memory. There was some talk, though, among the small folk that if you had such a long summer, the way we just finished with the 10-year-long summer, it predicted an equally long winter. The pendulum, right? If it sways this much higher on one end, there's more momentum to sway that much higher on the other end. Yeah, and I mean, what does that mean? Is there a way to predict it? Because it might not be 
akin to normal weather patterns if it's controlled in large part by the walkers. Uh, just something to think about. And the last few scenes at Winterfell were a surprise, at least to mm. me. Me too. A man calls Sansa away to the gate where Bran is brought in. He blankly says hello to her, but she rushes to hug him on the back of the wagon. And the two of them go to talk in the godswood, where Bran remarks he needs to speak to John. Don't we all? <laughs> Did you notice that in that scene, Bran was leaning up against that tree, just resembling the OG Three-Eyed Raven? Yeah. He's part of that tree. I mean, not really, not at this point, not like the Three-Eyed Raven was. But he's leaning up against that tree. It was just uh, eerie, especially with the way he's speaking. And the exa- that's the exact point where he tells her he can't be the rightful lord of Winterfell now because he is the Three-Eyed Raven. While difficult to explain, it means he can see everything. Everything that's ever happened and everything happening right now. It's all fragments he needs to learn to see better so he can be ready when the long night comes again. All right, a few things here. People have been bringing up, and I agree, that his statement seems to mirror Littlefinger's statement to Sansa. Littlefinger was telling her how she has to be thinking of everything always in her mind. What could happen, what has happened, and now Bran comes in and says, well, I can see everything that did happen, everything Hmm. that's happening now. Is that going to somehow tie together? And how far does his power extend? So our Clatcher Zymi also wrote in, about this scene to say that maybe Bran would learn how to affect past events and future events. Can he change things? We had talked about this way back when, during one of the earlier visions, and he called out to his father and Ned heard him. Yeah. Or at least it seemed like he did. And we said, does this mean he can influence it? It's not a fixed memory he's going back and seeing, but he could change the time stream. And we saw he actually did change the time stream when it came to Hodor. Hodor. So we know that that power is there on a certain level. He doesn't understand it yet. We don't understand it. But perhaps he could come to a point where he utilizes it to help with this war. Yeah, I believe we're not going to have enough time for him to fully understand it because that would end up having uh, that superhero where you can no longer write storylines about because they've become so powerful that nothing will ever affect anything. So there's no more worries. So I think he will have a glimpse and he will start to grasp parts of it, but we'll never see the full culmination of the Three-Eyed Raven. It also just gets very confusing when you're trying to explain in a storyline. This event happened then, it affects the future, it it gets a little jumbled. Doctor Who does it. (laughs) (laughs) I love stuff like that. I do have to say that I was bothered a little by this scene. As much as I thoroughly enjoyed everything that was happening in this episode, the change to Bran is drastic. Too sudden. Way too sudden. I know they've been keeping him out of a lot of the past few seasons. We've been seeing sporadic Bran. And none last season. So there could have been gradual changes happening we weren't privy to. But even from the last time we got a good glimpse at him, before the battle at the Heart Tree, where we lost Hodor, he didn't seem to be turning into this all mystical, bizarre, three-eyed raven. I know he hadn't gotten a lot of the visions yet at that point. And we see him in the early part of this season getting some of that at the heart tree. But it just feels like all of a sudden we have this far-off, cryptic, detached Bran who can't even say hello to Sansa because he's so three-eyed raven. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little weird. It was not what we wanted as viewers. First of all, awesome. We got another Stark reunion, which is great. And we're anticipating one more, right? 
So that was great for the half a second until you looked into his eyes. And then when they had him talking, I agree with you. It was very, I no longer have emotions. And I'm going to speak to my sister like this. It was almost overplayed. And I don't know if it was overacted. I I don't want to say that because I'm not sure. But it felt a little overacted to me. I I think we should still see somewhat of that brand in there. Yeah. Like, why would he bring up the worst moment of Sansa's life? Like, you can prove that you can see things without saying, I saw when you were forced to marry this guy. Right. Like, that brand (laughs) that used to be brand wouldn't do that. He did that at the wall when he first met Dolores Ed. Instead of just saying something that would prove he was brand Stark, something kind of private, He's like, I've seen what happened at the Fist of the First Men in Hardhome. And it's the same thing with Sansa here. And, of course, all it does is push her away because she's super freaked out about it. And he doesn't even care. He's like, I'll stay here a little longer. All right, Bran. Dude, are you going to become a one-dimensional character now? Because that's not what we need. I want to see the struggle, I think, is the thing. This starting to take him over, the powers that are beyond his control, and he has to surrender to that. I feel like we missed that whole part of his journey. I almost wish that Bran had the power, this might ruin the whole show, but uh, had the power to communicate in his head because that would help with Jon Snow talking to Sansa and like just use Bran as like a, a, a cell phone. An intermediary. <laughs> Be like, Sansa, what's going on? All right, yeah, you need to decide this, this, and that. <laughs> yeah. But obviously that would ruin the show, but kind of wish that was there. Or at least able to communicate to other people better what he sees. So if he can look through the tree in the present and see what's going on with John and talk like a normal person to Sansa, he could tell her what's happening. But, you know, part of this is we're just probably never going to get the Stark reunions that we want, that we've been hoping for so badly since season one. Every time we come close, it either doesn't happen or it's not the way we expected. So let me ask you, do you think Arya is going to be cold when she sees Sansa? I think 100% that reunion's not going to be what you're looking for. Damn it. I think the only one that could happen, and I don't know if it ever will, is the Arya John reunion. Might be the emotional, touching one that we want, but... Will they they reconnect? Will they reconnect? If they do, by then, how far down this line will Arya have gone? Will she even be Arya anymore? So we got a glimpse of it only between Sansa and Jon, the two that were never the closest of siblings. And even that, they had to restrict by time. He had to leave. You know, I'm very concerned. Will Jon even meet up with any of them? Now, the only thing that makes me think maybe he will is because we saw in the trailer way before the season started, we saw him fighting the White Walkers alongside Beric and all them. Don't know if I saw the Hound there, actually. But putting that aside, I'm worried that John doesn't have the time to get back in time. To Winterfell. Yeah. But I don't know. Unless they've made it through the wall by that point. And Winterfell right. is the defense instead of the wall. True. I have a feeling, okay, we have two episodes in a row where we feel like we're losing, right? Then we also have the White Walkers, who, of course, we're gonna, they're going to start winning. And they're going to defeat a lot of our Apex characters. So, like, Clatchers, be ready for a lot of heartache. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get the joyous moments that we got at the end of last season and episode one here. I think this is the closest it gets early on in the season. As you said, this is season seven, the winds of winter. This is when the bad shit happens, and it's only just the beginning. But we did get another oddly 
upbeat moment in Old Town, it was a bit bizarre to me. Archmaester Ebros comes in to examine Jorah's body. And it looks as though it's scarred already. It's, yeah. It's really healing at a fast rate. And it's only been a night. And he says the infection no longer even appears active. Uh, so that was a little weird, but apparently Sam is the best maester ever. <laughs> <laughs> and the archmaester says to him, it's unusual. You would almost think the entire area was debrided and treated. He's like, I know what you did here, Sam. Jorah plays it off really well also. He doesn't know anything about that. He just assumed it was the rest that helped him. I thought that was kind of <laughs> cute. I love Jorah, and I almost forgot how much I did. And I'm so glad that this happened. Yeah, I... And wondering where in the heck his storyline goes now. Uh, if it's not the Sam Jorah show, we know he's going back to Danny, but what is his place uh, in the bigger war going to be? There's always room. But he is free to go now. On his side, he tells Sam he was prepared to die. He really hadn't thought about what comes next, but he owes his life to Sam and also to Danny for making him come here. So he's back to go serve her. And they shake hands, which was. Touching. Very much. The skin-to-skin contact He hasn't touched again. anyone in so long, right? Yeah. They hope their paths will cross again. Okay, so maybe we wanted more of a struggle with that, but I think there's going to be plenty of struggles in Game of Thrones. <laughs> so I'm kind of happy that he is healed. Very strange overnight, but good for Sam and good for Jorah. Yeah, I think it's just the way the time frames were laid out. So there were so long of our seasons where certain characters moved very slowly or not much happened at all. Periods of time with Sam and Gilly where there wasn't a lot. Periods of time where you hardly saw Bran. And now all of a sudden they come back on the scene in season seven and it's like we had to fast forward yeah. their storylines to get them to the point of catching up with everyone else. And that feels rocky. You know, Bran's struggle had to be immediately pushed to you are the three-eyed raven. All of Sam's scenes flew by in one episode to the point that we've cured Jorah. Everything's good. But I agree with you. That's not to say I don't enjoy what's happening. I, I obviously wanted Jorah to be healed. I like that Sam is not really being punished for this. The Archmaester grills him later, said he could have infected himself and others, but he didn't. He succeeded at an incredibly difficult task where other maesters had failed. And he says, that man is alive because of you. You should be proud. I was very surprised that the Archmaester, his response was like that, because all that we know of him is not caring, really, right? More about the big picture and not very forgiving. So this was really good, especially when he's like, how did you do it? And he just said, I, I just read the directions. <laughs> it's like, all right, dude. I thought that was beautiful because you have to believe Sam's probably never heard those words from a male figure in his life. You know his father's never said that to him. I'm proud of you. And Sam could use a win here. I, I kind of suspected the Archmaester was keeping something from us. And I wonder if it was a secret like of Sam, a desire for him to prove him wrong. But, you know, he ends that by showing Sam a stack of books rotting away. He says they need to be recopied. And his reward is just not being expelled from the Citadel. Okay. You know, I think that's good. That's more believable. Absolutely. Rather than saying, all right, you get the keys to that secret room. You're now, here's some rings for your chain. But it did remind us, he said, there's many maesters with heavy chains on he of healing around their neck that could not do what you just did. 
Yeah, I, I, I also agree that it's more realistic. He has to continue back on this humdrum maester training. He, he's got to work from the bottom. Just because he tried something and it happened to pan out doesn't mean he doesn't still have a long path to becoming a learned maester. But, I mean, could he have gotten maybe one little link for that? <laughs> something? I well, don't know. Well, that's his... That's the maester's office, right? That's what it looked like. So he's in his office. Maybe he'll be copying in his office and they'll be speaking more often. Yeah. Why do you think it worked for Sam and it wouldn't work for most of the maesters? I'm not sure. I guess that I thought a lot of them would never try because they were too afraid they were going to get infected. I think part of it could just be luck. We've seen it's it's kind of a thing with Sam's character <laughs> that... Yeah. He's destined to live on, so he gets lucky, right? He Right, exactly. I mean, Sam the Slayer. Um, I think it's the care he did. We see that maesters don't care. Yeah. They, they do things for science. They do things to learn. Sam actually cared, and I think he took his time. He was very careful, and, and that's the difference. Well, he had a connection to his father, to Gior Mormont, so he very much had a reason to want Jorah to live. We have two more locations to discuss. The first is Casterly Rock. It starts with a conversation at Dragonstone, where Danny says they need to find Euron's fleet and destroy it. But the council all tells Danny she's too valuable to leave and seek him out herself. She wants to just take the dragons and go for it. So they force her to stay, continue along with the plan, and Tyrion describes what this siege of the rock is going to be like. No one has ever taken the rock. The Lannister army is still the army my father built. Well-trained and well-provisioned. 10,000 men at least. They will see us coming. They will be ready. But he has an idea. For as much as his father knew about the rock, he didn't build everything. Tyrion was the one who built the sewers. And this goes back to the storyline we heard many seasons ago. He was right. I was low. The company I kept, low. Women mostly. They weren't welcome at the rock. Father disapproved of that sort of behavior. I couldn't walk them through the front gates. I couldn't have them in my chambers. So in the process of building the sewers, I threw in something for myself. It was a passage that began in an out-of-the-way cove by the sea and ended beneath one of the main guard towers. No better place for low pursuits than beneath the ground. Costly rock is an impregnable fortress. But as a good friend of mine once said, give me ten good men and I'll impregnate the bitch. And that's, of course, a reference back to what Braun said about the defenses in the Vale. I also thought this was cool. This is the same way that Danny's troops invaded Marine through the sewers. So we're using that again. And Tyrion narrates over this battle as it takes place. But he's really feeling positive, thinking they will be outnumbered, but they will be fighting for something greater, for freedom and for Danny, and so they will triumph. Yeah, it was very poetic, and I was feeling very confident when Tyrion was talking this through. First off, when he starts speaking about what's going to happen and how the walls, his father built the walls, and we see all the Unsullied dying, I didn't know for a second that this was just a possibility in his mind. Hmm. But I don't know if you noticed that the Unsullied that they end that scene with dying on the ground was Grey Worm. Oh, no, I didn't yeah, see that. Yeah, that was his face. I, I rewound it like 30 times to make sure. Wow. 
Which makes sense because now when we see what really happens, and Tyrion is discussing what you just said, basically he has a better way. The first person we do see is Grey Worm. So of course, that's how I was like, yeah, that was definitely Grey Worm. He's the most important one. He's the only face we know from the Unsullied. The way he said it was so Tyrion-like, so poetic. My sister's army fight out of fear, but the Unsullied will be fighting for something greater. They will be fighting for freedom and the person that gave it to them. They will be fighting for you. And that's why they will triumph. I was feeling pumped. I was like, yes, so we're going to get our powers back. We're going to get this. And then right away, like Game of Thrones does, they give you a little punch in the chest. Yeah, well, I, you know, I had felt this way anytime we were listening to Tyrion's plans. They're very smart and poetic, but you find out later there are areas he underestimates too. He is not a long-standing military man with a career. There, there are things he doesn't think about. As smart as he is, he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, right? But Jamie, his whole life has been as a military man, and he's learned from this. So we see after taking the castle, the reality of this situation is Grey Worm winds up up top, and he can't understand where the rest of the Lannister men are until he looks over the walls and he sees Euron's fleet attacking the rest of their ships, and they realize that the bulk of the Lannister soldiers are somewhere else. There's Euron with his super fast ships. (laughs) Oh, I hate this guy so much. (laughs) So now we have the Unsullied, the bulk of the Unsullied, trapped there, essentially. Yeah. And we learn later that Jaime had his men take out all the food as well. Yeah, so he knows they're not going to be able to hold that castle. They took it, they can't hold it. They're going to have to leave, and then the only way back would be to traverse land to get back to Danny, which is going to put them at risk. Which will probably have traps throughout. Yeah, and that's given that winter doesn't start to come while that's happening, which we know they're not prepared for. How does she send her men out in battle without even thinking of winter is on its way? Yeah, We need to prep them for this. They're not even dressed for the weather yet. They're still wearing... They're unsullied in their Dothraki garments with no talk about outfitting them again. And even Tyrion said, I know my brothers, but they know me. His biggest strength is his biggest weakness as well. Yeah, and that's exactly what Jaime did. He learned from his mistakes. We wondered what that line was going to mean in reference to this episode, but he used the same strategy that Rob did in the Battle at the Whispering Wood by sacrificing part of his force to create a diversion and lead the main army there, Casterly Rock, while attacking elsewhere that he really wants, Highgarden. And that's where our last scene takes place. Jamie rides to the front of the army. That army looked tough. And we see he does, in fact, have Randall with him. And he also has Bronn. So this is where Bronn has been. Yeah, and the way they put that clip in when you saw Bronn's face was, I think was pretty closely after Tyrion said the quote that Bronn gave him. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like a nice transition. And they choose to cut over the battle scene. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I know they were limited on time and we didn't really have to see Jaime's men attacking them, but it was almost a little confusing for a minute. They're walking up to the gates and then they're standing over the dead bodies in the courtyard. It took me a second. Maybe it didn't take everyone else. I thought for a moment that they were coming back into the castle that the Unsullied just Mm. ransacked. I was like, oh, those are the dead bodies that the Unsullied took care of. And then I was thinking, like, are they hiding? 
and but then I realized where yeah. they actually were. Well, it's coming so soon off the heels of we're seeing these narrations from Tyrion, what's real with the Unsullied, this is what's real cut to High Garden. So it was a lot of back and forth very quickly. Also, I think ju- not just because of time, the fact that we didn't see the war. We don't know anyone on the Tyrell family except for Lady Olena, which they do give us. Who's left alive. So we would be watching Jamie's army fight people we don't know. And I think, one, they needed to not have every, every episode be an epic battle because that would lose its oomph. Now we'd come to suspect it, and it wouldn't mean as much when we get one of those. And two, because we didn't know anyone, so it wouldn't have meant as much. Yeah, I agree with that. I was thinking more along the lines of a quick skirmish, like we saw with the Unsullied narrated kind of battle. But we find out very quickly when Jamie goes up to see Lady Olena, who admits their fighting force was weak. But she thought they would have been defending Casterly Rock, so he fooled her as well. He says they let them take the rock. Because he knows they're not going to be able to hold it. So what does it matter anyway? Eventually, the Unsullied will have to abandon their position, like we said, without food or provisions, and march across land. This scene coming up before we get into Jamie and Lady Olena is also the part where we get confirmation that Jamie is carrying Widow's Whale. So we had suspected this and, you know, kind of figured all the way through, but they do tell us for sure. And Lady Olena starts to go into this conversation now. She knows she's going to die. She's having her final words out with Jamie. She says even she is shocked by Cersei's actions. Your sister has done some things I was incapable of imagining. That was my main mistake, a failure of imagination. So for everything she has done to keep her family alive, even Cersei plays on a different level. Jamie tries to argue this by saying after Cersei is done and there's no one left to oppose them, When people are living peacefully in the world she built, do you think they'll wring their hands over the way she wanted? It's just like, man, you can feel your heart dropping. The same experience Lady Olena is having here. You are so blind. She says, you really do love her, you poor fool. She'll be the end of you. And man, I I think, as you said earlier, Lady Olena is planting some bombs in her Mm -hmm. last couple of episodes that will explode later this season and they'll all wind up coming true. Just like she did with Daenerys last episode. Yeah. We really needed this scene. One, because she was one of the strongest actors in this show. Her ability to speak and the levity of the things she says was priceless and they needed to give her one more punch out. Yeah, she's she's witty, but at the same time, most of the time, she's also talking about things that are incredibly serious. She kind of asks Jamie now how this is going to happen. How will she die? And Jamie tells her he talked Cersei out of the more gruesome death she was picturing, and he pours poison into her wine. Probably the easiest way Jamie could give her to go out, and I thought, man, what is it that he owes Olena? She doesn't really mean much to him to offer her such a peaceful death to go against Cersei in order to negotiate that for her. So I think it really just shows that Jamie is a good person right now underneath all this. I She's, think he's gone through a lot. He's gone through so much. His character has changed. This is to remind us that there's parts of Jamie you like. And when he becomes a good guy. <laughs> oh my God. That's what I'm looking for here, right? Because there was no reason other than him saying she didn't deserve this. She's an older, respectable woman and she should go out that way. And thank goodness she kept her mouth shut for that long because she takes it without pause and then goes into her final statement. 
I'd hate to die like your son, clawing at my neck, foam and bile spilling from my mouth, eyes blood red, skin purple. Must have been horrible for you as a king's guard, as a father. It was horrible enough for me, a shocking scene. Not at all what I intended. You see, I'd never seen the poison work before. Tell Cersei, I wanted to know it was me. And the reins of Castamere play as Jamie walks out of that room totally floored. Yeah. It was asked by some of our Clatchers why they didn't show her dying. And I firmly believe that this was to let what she said resonate in our brains longer and have that much more validity. Yes. If we saw her die, we still would have been like, oh, that was awesome what she said. But I think it would have been overshadowed by the fact that she dies painfully or dies ugly by poison. I agree. I don't think they were leaving that open to interpretation like she might not be dead. I think that's... 100% confirmed, but... Yeah, she's definitely dead. They were trying to give her a certain type of ending, and it worked. And also, the impact it had on Jamie continued to resonate after the episode, that look on his face. Yeah, As he's realizing that she was responsible for Joffrey's death. I also wondered if we're going to come back next episode. Jamie's still reeling from that discovery for him to get the message, finally, that Arya sent about the phrase... You know, that winter came for House Frey. Oh, I see. And they start getting these hits now to their side. You know, as, as smart as Cersei thinks she is, as much as they think they have it together, there's enemies all over the place, and they're just going to keep cropping up. I um, hope so. Because nobody likes Cersei. I mean, that could be a way that Jamie starts to realize. Who knows? He still seems pretty damn brainwashed in this episode. Well, that's going to do it for our Crow's Eye View. Let's go into our Raven rating for Episode 3. On a scale of 1 to 10, Jason, what do you give it? My Raven rating for this episode is 8.9. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, leaving me feeling upset. Also some adulation because of Lady Olena's last words. But man, you know, Game of Thrones is going to go down as the best show ever made. It will be the godfather of TV shows. Okay, well, I feel like we have swapped roles in our ratings. I give this episode 9.5 Ravens. So that was what I gave my first episode. Yes. I gave episode one a 9, two a 9.2, and three a 9.5. I think it needs to be said that my rating ratios are different for the show because of how good it is. You can't compare my ratings on an episode-by-episode basis from this and The Magicians. Oh, of Because course. the scale is different. So an 8.9 Game of Thrones is not an 8.9 in Magicians. I'm keeping the nines away because I know that I would be saying 9.9, 9.9. But then that what about that episode <laughs> when Game of Thrones just punches you out? You That's know? what I was saying last season. And I mean, don't worry. There are times when I go pretty low. In reviewing the season six, I had given episode three a 6.5. Uh, episode eight a six. But I had also given a few 9.3, 9.5, and I gave Winds of Winter a 10. So while I do tend to rate a little higher for Game of Thrones since I love it, you do have to work for that 9.5. I give it here because I truly loved almost every scene that took place in this episode. I thought they were 
tying in things from earlier seasons, doing callbacks, there was action, there was character work. Everything I wanted to see that I was hoping for out of season seven started in this episode three. I must say my favorite scene of all time, besides maybe when Daenerys burns people, <laughs> is Daenerys and John meeting. And that whole opening scene was probably one of my favorite scenes of Game of Thrones. Ever. Yeah, Danny and John, John and Tyrion, just a lot of great stuff happening here. We opened up our Twitter to a Clatcher poll, which we spoke about last week. And I'm so glad we did it. And we're going to continue to do this every week because we had such a great turnout. We asked the Clatchers what your opinion was. Who is your MVB, most valuable bannerman? And this is, of course, a segment we do on every episode where Jason and I give our most valuable person, if you will. We call it Bannerman here on GOT. With 139 votes, we got 12% for Cersei, 13% for Euron, 15% for Tyrion. And the winner at 60% was Lady Olena. Normally when we do Clatcher polls, it takes a while for the votes to come in. As soon as I put it up, 30 seconds in, there was 11. I was texting you that we already got 11 votes, and I look up, and there was 63. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Next week, if you want to be part of this Clatcher poll, just follow us at CKC Podcast on Twitter. I think part of the response was Lady Olena just had such an amazing night that yeah. people wanted to ring in that vote for her. We got some good comments, too. Fanatically correct, said Tyrion had the best lines this episode. Agreed. Claudio said, while Lady Olena's last words were a stinger, the MVB should have bigger overall impact, so he gives it to the imp. And Michael said the last scene with Jamie and Olena was tense as fuck, and so he gives it to Lady Olena. This makes me feel good because our Clatchers think just like we do. We hate to give the most valuable bannerman to a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Who does? So my MVB, and I'm not just being a copycat, I swear, <laughs> I had mine written down, is Lady Olena. Now, Tyrion, I wanted to give Tyrion the whole time until, one, his plan fell through. Mm. And two, Lady Olena dropped that bomb. Yeah. If we were going bad guys, Euron probably owned it, but I'm going Lady Olena. Now, Jason, I came up with my MVB before I saw what names... You put on our poll since I was away this weekend. So I'll give you my original one, which was Davos of House Seaworth. We always have to give our houses, right? Oh, that's right. And that's because I thought he just did such a kick-ass job tonight of trying to kind of be on both sides, be a bit of a mediator the way Tyrion was, and shoot Danny straight. Yeah. This is Jon Snow. He's king in the north. It's good. It's all good. <laughs> I, he's always the best. He was such an honorable, valuable right-hand man to Stannis all the way through. And I mean, there were parts about Stannis where you could see why he did that. It wasn't really his fault what happened in the end. But now he's choosing to serve another very honorable man in Jon Snow. And you know, I, I always secretly liked Stannis despite everything. So the fact that Davos is following those two men, I think, speaks volumes to him. He believes in them and what they're doing. I like that. But if I was going with somebody from your poll, I too would give it to Lady Olena. Unfortunately, with our polls, we're only allowed to give four. I know. I hate that. But we'll try to pick who we think are the four most epic people in the episode. Coming to our last couple of sections, we had no wolf watch this time as there were no wolves in episode three. So let's go right on to our Clatcher's comments. And we did say some of these throughout the course of the episode? We have a few that were sent to us before the episode. Courtney wrote to us, 
saying, I just wanted to say that I think Theon will redeem himself again. He saved Sansa and will most likely end up saving another big character. Courtney, I hope you're right. Me that too. would be great. It's just he's going to have to do it in a really badass fashion for me to want to shake his hand. Yeah, I agree. Steve wrote in to say he thought Arya would continue with her kill list after seeing Nymeria. And while that was before the episode, it is still an ongoing question as we didn't see Arya here. I believe Arya's going up north, standing firm. You, you stay on that, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen R. wrote in about Danny's army. He echoes some of our concerns, saying, I believe her Unsullied and Dothraki will not last very long against the army of the dead. Both are trained, dressed, and armed for southern warfare. The Night King and his army of the dead bring winter with them. I'm sure both of these armies will have never seen snow before. How will they react to the new climate while battling the walkers? This will be interesting to see. Both would need to be rearmed with winter combat gear, similar to what the Brothers of the Night's Watch wear. And I agree, there are some practical conversations that should and need to happen now between John and Danny. Instead of squabbling and who's going to bend the knee, what are my titles? Let's talk about how we get this done. For instance, even if you don't believe in the Night King... Winter's coming, and your men aren't ready for that. Daniel also wrote in, speculating on how the Danny-John meeting would go. What if their interactions don't go as everyone thinks? What if Danny decides not to team up with him or vice versa? What would both of their next moves be? So again, I think this is a question still kind of hanging out there, but yeah. episode three may be confirmed they will at least be trying to work on an alliance moving forward. Yeah, but the, the main question is still there. What are they going to do? Is John going to have to help her first? Or is she going to totally abandon going down south for a little while? What, what's the deal here? Very curious. After the episode, we got an email from Claudio. He wrote, John is starting to look like one hell of an option, as far as allies are concerned. Brand's distance and focus is necessary, but a little sad. His focus is necessary... But his distance, I don't know. Uh, it's, I don't think we know enough. Again, it's, it's this part of everything that he's going through. Has he seen things that make him feel he has to disconnect emotionally from the people he loves because of what's coming or what will happen? Or is this still a result of the things he witnessed at the battle at the heart tree? Yeah. And what it was like to lose all of those people he was so close with. Um, I think we just need more brand in general to give us the answers to some of those questions. Well, and one final comment unrelated to the episodes came from Anastasia to tell us about a book she wasn't sure if we had looked at yet called Game of Thrones and Philosophy, Logic Cuts Deeper Than Swords by William Irwin and Henry Jacoby. It's an in-depth look at the philosophical issues behind HBO's Game of Thrones TV series and the books that inspired it. It delves into the many philosophical questions that arise in the complex character-driven series, including, is it right for a good king to usurp the throne of a bad one and murder his family? How far should you go to protect your family and its secrets? In a fantasy universe with medieval morals and ethics, can female characters reflect modern feminist ideals? And so it draws on great philosophers from ancient Greece to modern America to explore these intriguing topics, such as the strange creatures the incestuous relationship between Jamie and Cersei, and what does it mean to have virtue and honor and play the Game of Thrones? I had not heard about this. I know there's been tons of spin-off books not written by our original authors, but going into some of the 
Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire topics. But this is really cool because we like to get into those philosophical discussions about what's behind things, character motivations and, and stuff like that. And it sounds like that's a lot of the topics they cover. So thank you for recommending that. I am definitely going to look into it. And if we wind up reading it, we will get back to you guys and let you know how it was. This last section is sneak peek through the heart tree. So if you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode four, fittingly titled The Spoils of War. For everyone that's still here, we got a minimal synopsis of what's coming in episode four. We know that this probably references the spoils seized in the sack of Highgarden. We see Cersei showing the Iron Bank her plan and Danny saying she is done with clever plans. So she is busting out the dragons. Well, the seed of Olena has grown in her brain. So yeah, one of the last shots in this preview was Drogon looking like he was fighting and he looked pretty mm. badass. So I'm wondering who he is fighting. He's huge now. We see Theon coming to shore. We're not sure what shore not it sure. is. Yeah. But I'm assuming it's Dragonstone. And I wonder what kind of uh, hello he's going to get from that. Oh boy. Well, John's going to see him. That might snap him out. I don't know. John's going to hug him and be like, what's wrong with you, dude? Unless this was another random ironborn ship, maybe they take him back to the Iron Islands. Oh, I wonder. No, no, we did see him in the trailer. With them? Yeah, he's not chained up. He's helping bring in the boat. Okay. All right. Yeah, I missed that. And we also see, and this is why I was so adamant about her going up north, we see Arya on a horse looking at Winterfell. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to cheat with the sneak peeks. <laughs> but I have been saying that since yes, last. Yes, you have. Yep. Now, one of the things we saw, and it was very quick, is we saw Littlefinger pulling his dagger out. And that's yeah. the dagger we've been talking about. The cat's paw dagger. Who do you think she's, he's doing that to? Do you think it's to Arya? And that's how Arya defeats him and gets that dagger? Or at that point in the shot, is it already Arya? Haven't taken his face Ooh, and his dagger? I like that. But if she's she wouldn't gonna... get anything extra out of being him up north. No, that's if she wants to still go south and kill Cersei. Oh, my god. A way that she can get in close to her is to say, you know, I've come back. I've brought you the Knights of the Vale. I'm ready to help you win this war. Uh, they, there's been a lot of predictions oh, about, <laughs> about who Arya's going to take for a face. One of them has been Littlefinger, and it's the one I most subscribe to because it, it deals with the fact of her going north by saying she would be at Winterfell long enough to do that, but then she would also still head south. So I think plot-line-wise... All the Tetris puzzles fit that way. Yeah, exactly. That's exciting. Would we see her, though, in next episode already down south as Littlefinger? Well, the way they're doing this time jump thing... That's a super big... Well, I, I think that's too much. Maybe we see her in Winterfell. We see her go after him, take it, and leave Winterfell as him next episode. That'd be cool. I like it. We also watched the inside the episode from episode three. And I'm, I'm including this in spoilers because I know that some people don't like to watch that portion where David and Dan dive deeper. But they talked about how the spine of the episode was the Danny John meeting we spent so much time discussing here. And the way she sees him, kind of as we said, she's a girl with fancy titles in the beginning who thinks she's entitled to everything. And John is just a bastard getting above himself, trying to take a piece of her kingdom. 
And if what he says is true, it's a problem she doesn't have time to deal with, having to fight Cersei and everything else. And that's a good point. Maybe she believes him, but fully subscribing to that means it has to pull her attention away. And she's afraid to divide focus at such a critical moment. And they also talked about Jamie making that strategic decision to give up Casterly Rock, how that echoes back to earlier seasons, and to go after Highgarden because it's more valuable. So he is learning as a strategist as well. Well, it's all very exciting. I can't wait to see what's coming next in episode four, The Spoils of War, especially off the high of this episode. Me neither. My, my anticipations are really built up. Clatchers, thank you as always for all the comments following us on Twitter, sending us awesome photos, giving us rating and reviews. That is so valuable. So let's keep those coming. A lot have been coming in. We really appreciate that you guys came to that call and and your kind words are, are so amazing. Thank you. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.